0: Welcome to A Shot in the Arm. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast where we explore those meddling issues in global health and human rights. What do biomedical advances mean for us? What's coming around the corner? How will they affect our lives from Beira to Bangkok? In this podcast, we believe that people have the ability and the responsibility to understand and adapt these transformations to make their lives healthier. Well, we have a fundamentally optimistic worldview here even if day-to-day facts tell us how far we have to go. In this episode, we are going to discuss the role of digital and social media and how it can be used to raise awareness about health issues and how we can affect behavior change in the major health alerts and emergencies facing us. But we're going to start the uh, episode with an update on the horrendous attack on, human, uh, on women's uh, reproductive health justice taking place here in the United States. Recently, the Supreme Court of the United States agreed to continue a ban on the most egregious elements of an anti-abortion law in Indiana, with one rather ghoulish exception that clinics must be required to bury or cremate fetal remains – This really is the issue of our generation, and every week we're going to urge everyone to educate and inform themselves. And I want to highlight some of the organizations that are doing really good work in the states and in the cities that are being most affected. So at the bottom of the episode uh, and on the website, you'll see links to Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky pink and i urge you to go and visit their website and see see the terrific work they're doing in making sure that women have access not just to information about safe abortions but about contraceptives access to tampons very very basic healthcare so in this episode we are going to meet georgia arnold who co-founded and is the executive director of mtv staying alive MTV Staying Alive is a fascinating, curious hybrid of public sector experience and the power of the business voice, combined with um, really phenomenal community engagement. At its heart is a TV series called Sugar, which is played across the continent of Africa. And what Sugar does is basically tell stories of young Africans from different communities as they struggle uh, and explore their sexuality, identity and reproductive health. Georgia is actually much more than someone working in the media industry. She was one of the founding leaders of the business response to AIDS. She and I have been teenagers for many years. Georgia, welcome to A Shot in the Arm.
1: Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I've listened from afar, so I've been very jealous. So I'm excited to actually be in front of the mic for once.
0: Oh, well, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Uh, Can we start off by asking a pretty stupid question? What is MTV Staying Alive?
1: It's not a stupid question. It is a 501c3. So we are a charity, but we are unique in the fact that we have the rights to use the MTV brand. And why is that good for us? It's good for us because what we're aiming to do is tell stories that save lives, but our audience is young people. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world, that MTV logo is known. And it means that our audience. Know us, they're attracted to us, uh, they feel like they're being their, it's their peer, it's trusted. So, all of those brilliant things mean that we can run a charity but reach millions of young people around the world. So, how did you get into this? Uh, so, we go, we do go way back. I actually, next week, I'm celebrating my 25th anniversary at MTV.
0: Wow. Congratulations.
1: I think so. Yes. I I think you serve less for a life sentence. (laughs) Um, But I started off 25 years ago. I walked through the door as an assistant to the managing director of MTV International, Bill Rohde, in a small office in Camden. There was about 100 odd people in the building and you pretty much could do anything you wanted to. There was no regulations. There was no HR. There possibly was HR, actually. But, you know, in my head, there, there definitely wasn't. The receptionist when I started working there was a young woman called Davina McCall. You're British. You'll know that she has gone on to be a huge TV star. So you could sort of say, I want to do this. And there wasn't enough people to do anything. So you could create program ideas. I didn't want to create program ideas. In fact, I was quite happy being Bill's assistant. But at one point, he said to me, we've got a charity budget. It was a whole $5,000. Even back then, quite frankly, that's not a lot of money. And he said, I think we should care about something. So go and find something to care about. So we're talking the mid-90s. AIDS was rampant. Young people were most affected. They were dying off at a horrendous rate. And It didn't take rocket science, and I'm definitely not a scientist, but it didn't take rocket science to figure out MTV should care about this and can use its brand in order to do good.
0: I remember a Staying Alive World AIDS Day program that you produced that followed a a day in the life of a drug user in, I think, St. Petersburg, or maybe it was Moscow. and It was one of the most brutal, devastating things I've ever seen. And I think the group of us that were looking at a preview were, were just shocked to the core. And it struck me then, and it strikes me now that you've had the ability to say things that others, maybe in government or in the NGO community, can't say. How did you take advantage of that unique situation that you were in?
1: I think it goes hand in hand with responsibility as well. Right? I have taken a lot of advantage over the time. And I've had this, Bill Rody gave me the incredible access to airwaves around the world, right? So that's amazing. But it also means you have to be really responsible about your messaging and you have to think about what are you saying, who are you saying it to, and how are you saying it. And that young man who unfortunately died soon after um, we filmed with him, we had to make sure, you know, that with this young, drug addict that we had a responsibility to him um, in the same way that we do to anyone that we put on air. Um, And I think that's really important. It's very much at the core of what we do is making sure that we care not just about our audience, but the people that we engage with as well.
0: And you've moved from sort of documentary or reality TV storytelling to with Sugar, essentially a narrative, a drama. Can you tell us a bit about Sugar and and the journey of, of where it's got to?
1: Mm. So MTV Sugar came about, it really has been a process over the 20 years. So we started off producing documentaries and then we did talk shows. I don't know if you remember, we did a talk show with Bill Clinton at one of the AIDS conferences. Oh Yes, Yes, I remember that too. Um, We did a documentary with Nelson Mandela. In fact, one of our board members, our vice chair is Henry Lou Yomba, who was in that Meeting Mandela documentary. So an incredible, inspiring young man from Uganda who is HIV positive, who really helped us Form the shape of the foundation, but what we realised as we were doing these documentaries, what we were producing was really good quality, award-winning content. So number one, we started to cre- we created it from day one, at rights cleared and cost-free. What that means is that if you are anywhere around the world and you want to watch it, you can. I mean, it's easier now because you can watch it on YouTube, which. Back in the day, you didn't, right? But you can ask us to send you a copy and we would do. But more importantly, we give it away still today to broadcasters. So, and we don't charge them anything. The only thing they can't do is edit it, right? So they have to show it as it is. So I think that's really important. And then what we also realized with the documentaries is they were good, but perhaps they were conversation the next day. But were they behavior changing? And I would say probably not, but this is how we've grown, right? We've done things, we've learned from them and we've sort of developed our strategy. For you know, every single day we're thinking about how do we do this? How do we do it better? What other ways are there to look at? And so, out of these documentaries came a film called Transit. Um, and from the trap from Transit, we realised actually we're onto something here because what we saw with Transit was our audience were identifying with the characters on screen, and and somehow in the drama it felt a little bit more real than watching a documentary in someone's story. And so 10 years ago in Kenya, um, we got funding from PEPFAR and we created a TV drama called MTV Sugar. And Back then it was just a TV drama. It starred a little-known actress called Lupita Nyong'o, who has gone on to win an Oscar and is in Black Panther, so that's fantastic. Mm. And I don't think we realize that this three-episode drama – would turn into something that has had such incredible impact, and it's perhaps a theme of my time at MTV. Is I would love to say that you know, 20 years ago, when yes, we first met Ben. Um, sorry, everybody, he he is that old, not that old. Uh, <laughs> um, but 20 years ago, I would love to say I had the vision and the stri- you know the strategic now to say this is where I want to go. This is where I want MTV staying alive to grow. A lot of it has happened through gut, through circumstance, and through understanding each time what we're doing, therefore we should move it on. And that, you know, it's not necessarily the right way to do business, but it's something I'm really proud of is we've never stood still.
0: One of the things that I'm very impressed about MTV staying alive, uh, and actually I think it goes, you said the gut, it goes to the core of who you are, is that you know how to exploit opportunities. You see them coming perhaps before others. But there's one question that really stands out as you describe this journey over 20 years. You know, you and I are teenagers, but we've been teenagers many times over. So how do you remain relevant and fresh to the audience that you are trying to inform and trying to change their behavior? Why should they listen to a bunch of older people?
1: So first of all, I work with brilliant people. Um, and I think that anyone who is leading an organization cannot lead well if you don't work with brilliant people. So I think that for me is number one. Number two is everything we create is created with young people. There's this term that everyone uses, um, human-centered design. It is not my favorite term, right? That is what we do, but then we're all humans, right? It's not rabbit-centered design or dog-centered design, right? It, so we work with young people from the very start of a project through to the end. So I'll, I'll talk you through it with MTV Sugar. When we decide that we're going into a country and we're going to produce a, a campaign there, the first thing we do is pull young people together from... Um, the sort of the urban and the peri-urban areas that we want to be able to influence and we talk to them. We talk to them about what do they eat for breakfast, who do they live with, how do they speak to their parents or their siblings or their teachers and their peers, what clothes they wear, what music they listen to, as well as what issues they have. And that for us is essential. That's where the storylines come from. I mean, you know, we spent a couple of days together and a story that I tell often is one where I was in the Western Cape in South Africa, relatively rural. We were talking to about 50 or 60 kids. They were 15 to 17 years old and I was asking them about what they wanted to see in the next series and this young girl comes up right from the back of the room and she sort of scrapes her chair and she's got real attitude her gray cardigan is slouched sort of under her shoulders and she comes up and she says well I know what needs to happen in the new series so I said great well tell me about it and she said well someone has to die And I said, okay, well, how do they die? Do they die because of AIDS? Do they die because of violence? Like, tell me how do they die? And she was like, I don't care. That's not my problem. You're the producer. You tell me how they die. And I was really taken aback. And I said to her, well, then tell me why they die. And she said, well, MTV Sugar reflects our life. And in our life, someone always dies. And it was really shocking to me that it's not the how, it's the why. And I came out of that room and I picked up the phone to the production team and I said, we need someone to die. And they, they came back to me and they went, well, how do they die? And I was like, I don't care. It's sort of not my problem really. and And so, but right. So we take that research and that's how we're relevant. We also, by the way, to go back to the MTV brand, one of the benefits that we have is we have, have access to music artists from across the continent. So the soundtrack and sometimes some of the actors as well, because they have cameo roles, are filled with the most relevant music artists. And so that makes us feel very relevant as well.
0: So one of the other things that you've done, which many public health education and awareness campaigns have not done... Is put yourself through very public scrutiny through monitoring and evaluation with the World Bank, with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, for example. Did those evaluations tell you anything? Um, that's obviously the first question. But the second one that that I'm most interested in is why did you take that risk to let yourself be evaluated in that way?
1: Well, I'll, I'll answer that first. I think you actually can't. You know, we're we're funded externally, right? So we've We have been and are currently funded by the Gates Foundation, by Unitaid. We've been funded by PEPFAR, by the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, right, which is Amazing! All of these people taking risks with large amounts of money on the work that we're doing. When I did start this, and we mentioned my guard, right? I, I used to knock on people's door and say, "Hey, I'm I'm from MTV. I think this can work, right?" And I somehow managed to persuade people to give me not not the large scale money, but we we found money to make documentaries. Today, when we're talking about uh, you know a, a full campaign, which is I, I should say by the way, TV, radio, graphic novels, digital, and social media and peer education that costs around three million dollars, right So you can't take three million dollars and say well thanks thanks for giving us the money. can we have some more please right you have to do you have to put yourself there and also it's the right thing to do because if you have an evaluation and they say, well this isn't working, then the right thing to do is to walk away or to figure out how to to do it where it does make an impact. so i I don't think really any of us have a choice. I will say by the way. I think evaluation is exceptionally costly and far too long in order to get results. And I would love there to be a middle ground where there is evaluation that is a lot more rapid, where you can get results, that we can actually feed into our productions um, now that we have had some of these large-scale evaluations. But in terms of impact, um, so the World Bank did an RCT, a randomized control trial in Nigeria with 5,000 young people. They screened MTV Sugar across, I think It was 250 sites. They asked over 100 questions. They came back six months later and re-asked those 100 questions. And they also had a control group and they watched Giddy Up, which is a a Nigerian teen drama, but without social messaging through it. And what they did was both groups got HIV testing vouchers to youth-friendly testing services. And they also did biomarkers for chlamydia. And that was really scary. Um, uh, one of our board members is Peter autumn And Peter actually asked why I was uh, why I was doing this, because he said, you'll never find anything in six months in terms of the biomarkers. What the World Bank came back with is that from the MTV Sugar Group, double the number got tested versus the control group. And that the biomarkers showed that chlamydia had dropped by 58% amongst young women in the MTV Sugar Group over six months. So, that is stunning results.
0: Oh, it's amazing. And I completely agree with you that we need to find more effective ways of monitoring and evaluating in real time. And uh, you know, the organization I used to be with, Pangea, that was our passion, to try and give people information that they could use immediately. But I still think it's a really incredible thing that you put yourselves under the microscope, as it were, like that. One of the other things that has struck me about you is that you've never taken no for an answer. And in this context, I'm thinking of the end of AIDS rhetoric, which we've experienced for the last four or five years, which says, you know, AIDS is going to be over in 2020 as a major public health threat and then pretty much wiped out by 2030. And you've been one of the most vocal and assertive opponents of that thinking. Can you tell us a bit about that and what has uh, driven you to think that?
1: (sighs) It's such a big question. Um, the end of AIDS is, is a phenomenal vision, right? And I understand why it's out there. And I understand it's what we are all driving towards. The thing that gets me incredibly frustrated is that the, the normal person on the street thinks that AIDS is no longer or thinks that you can take a pill and you're cured and it's fine. And still definitely the normal person on the street doesn't think AIDS affects them. There is rarely a distinction between HIV and AIDS. There's not enough of a distinction in terms of that. And there was some new research out in South Africa this week that said the rate of incidence of HIV in South Africa has gone up by 5%. So how is that the end of AIDS? How with the incredible innovations that are around today, with PrEP, with self-testing, with much, much better ARVs, why is there still infections? And to me, it's really simple, right? And, and this is, ultimately, my ambition in life is to talk more about sex, right? My, my son, when he-
0: I know, your poor son. My mother talks about sex.
1: And, right? Except my poor son, who famously told his, his his teacher when he was eight years old and she was asking me what I did, and he just interrupted us and rolled his eyes and went, ugh, oh. Basically, Miss, my mum just gets paid to talk about sex all day long, which is a great job, right? I mean, she thought I was a sex phone operator and avoided me for the rest of the term. But it, this is what we should all be doing, and you know, we're never going to see the end of AIDS. We can talk about this later on, but reproductive health—we're um, we're never going to see women have full choice um, of their own bodies if we culturally and i'm talking about everywhere in the the world are not able to be be able to talk openly about an issue that quite frankly you and i would not be here. I know this is a scary thought, but if our parents had not had sex, right, you and I wouldn't be here. So, it's, sorry, that Ben's is just a gone truly
0: terrifying thought. <laughs> but it it reminds me of uh, of the sex education my father provided me, and I was what 15, 16, maybe seventeen. So, Ben, I think it's time we had that conversation. I went, "Oh, really? Do we have to?" No, no, we don't. No, it's quite all right. And that was that. And, and look at
1: you now. And look at me now. <laughs>
0: But I think in this environment, with so many social and economic pressures, with information and disinformation coming from all sorts of sources, we really owe it to young people to say, here are the facts, no judgment but here is how you protect yourself
1: right and and no judgment is so important to me because i think you know we're all judged right it, we're judged uh, you know how we do in our day-to-day jobs but we're judged in our relationships we're judged by our actions and people make decisions for very different reasons and i think Look, perhaps I I aim for a utopian vision where we are very comfortable about who we are, what our bodies look like, the actions that we take. But if we could all be more open in life, I, I think we would have a better society to live in. But I, you know.
0: Well, I think that's a vision well welfare well worth fighting for uh, and, and I fully embrace it as we sort of move the discussion into the business response to as one more one more thing about your industry, the media industry. some people have argued that you know the kind of donation model of content license free is is somewhat similar to pharmaceutical company donations in that it's Small. It's big enough to stop competitors from competing, but small enough to prevent any major impact being done. Uh, have you faced those criticisms? And, and if you have, how have you responded to them?
1: I'm not sure I quite get what you're saying.
0: So, some have argued that the kind of donation of content of free material that you've provided by MTV is a little similar to some of the pharmaceutical company donations. It's big enough to persuade competitors not to enter the sphere, but it's too small to make a major, mm. major impact on behavior change. Got it. Okay. How would you respond to that?
1: Well, it's interesting. I have, um, there are some other brilliant organizations out there like the Discovery Foundation. Um, Um, who I love their work and they sell their content to broadcasters and they have challenged me occasionally that we should be selling content too because it effectively prices them out the market by us giving it away for free but this was us giving it away for free is fundamental to who we are as the foundation we believe strongly that you should be able to access the messages that we are able to craft in a way that young people relate to we should be able to give it to anyone and no one should have to pay for it. So I think that's really important. And, you know, I would say to you in terms of is it too small to make an impact – I would say it is huge, right? We reach 720 million homes worldwide with our broadcast. We're on 180 different platforms, whether that's TV or online. And if you look at TV ratings, SABC1 in South Africa, which is a terrestrial channel that airs MTV Sugar, on average, they're hitting 2.8 million. Viewers a week, and forty-five percent of those viewers are from the lowest-income households. So we are reaching the right places and the right people where they should be reached.
0: So you and I were early founders of the Business Aids response, and and, and I think you had interactions with the late Ambassador Holbrook before I did. Um, and, and while I worked for him in those two, three very intense years he kept saying to me that I was neither as beautiful nor as clever as you and that I was his check's second choice. Um, (laughs) And he would remind me constantly of that. So why didn't you go and work for Richard Holbrook?
1: Why didn't I go and Well, firstly, I'm not sure I would want to work for someone who said, uh, who used the way that I look, uh, however he felt about that, as to whether or not I should go and work for him. I would like to state that. But, you know, Richard Holbrook, I mean, there is... Quite a human being, right, who walked on this planet. The first time I met him, um, I honestly didn't know who he was. So, okay, I've admitted that publicly. I I think that's a
0: very British thing. I didn't know who he was either.
1: No, I, you know, and um, I was not necessarily as up to date on current affairs as I should be. And um, Bill Rohde was chairing the Global Business Council on HIV. Was it council or coalition? I forget. It was council in the early days with a great
0: big green G.
1: Oh, that was a terrible brand. Oh, I really hope I wasn't responsible for that. That branding was awful. So it was just after Gore had not won the presidency, and Bill got a call from UN Secretary General Kofi Annan and said, "I want you to do some work with Richard Holbrook. He's very interested in getting involved." And so I was in New York, and Bill said, "Look, can you go and meet with him?" So I said, "Yeah, sure." I'll, I'll do whatever, you know, whatever's needed. Didn't really know who he was. Went into a small windowless room at the UN. Me, Ambassador Holbrook, and, you know, a bunch of other guys and ended up having a literally stand-up row when we both pulled our chairs away from the table and eyeballed each other. And and these guys in the room are almost cowering. Um, but I think it helped that I didn't know who he was and I didn't know who I was arguing against. And, and what was interesting, what we were arguing about, about was that Holbrook had come in all guns blazing, as he does, very arrogant. I'm definitely not the first or the last person to say that about him. And as far as he was concerned, he knew exactly what was needed. And I was somewhat affronted as someone who, you know, by the way, I was pretty still green myself in terms of what was needed for the business response, but I felt like I knew a bit more than he did. Yeah. I don't know that I did. And he said, Every single person in every business should be tested for HIV, no exceptions. And I argued and I said, and I I certainly was right at, at the time is, you know, there is not enough confidentiality. There is not good enough ARVs. There's not enough ARVs to be able to do that for all of those people that you will find being positive. And we had this massive row about it. Now, today, I don't know, maybe there is something there because I think self-testing is such an incredible innovation that maybe there is a way that we can look at getting people tested because, you know, with you equals you, we we know that if you know that you're positive and you can get onto ARVs, then, you know, that's the right thing to do. And I I just, as an aside on that, this goes back to my, you know, ending AIDS, there's not enough people getting tested, despite the 90-90-90, and there's not enough ARVs or access to them, or even the right generation of ARVs in the right places. But that's an aside.
0: Yeah, and but I think that's very relevant because. You know, back then, you're absolutely right. And and I fought the same fight and you and I discussed it and worked together over those years. One of the things that's really interested me about the PrEP campaigns in the United States, I haven't agreed with, with everything that's been done, but my gosh, they have put HIV prevention back on the top of the agenda. And you know as a movement we have singularly failed to do that over the last 20 years and that that fact that you describe of south africa having an increase in hiv infections in these last years that that really should be an outrage to our sensibilities because we have spent billions of dollars and we just haven't spent it correctly and there needs to be a recalibration towards prevention where do you think we stand with the business response now what do we have to do next
1: what business response (laughs) you know that that's where you and i started all sometimes i have imposter syndrome you know even today in terms of what we do and i I still think of myself as that very naive person who walked through the doors of mtv and, and didn't by the way know what mtv was because we didn't have cable tv back in the day and i Look at what you and I did with the business response and how we had, you know, at the table, you were Glaxo, we had Levi's, we had Coca-Cola, we had all the banks. And the businesses were competing against each other to be able to show off what they were all doing and how they were responding to the challenge. Today, there really isn't that business response. And again, it goes back to the end of aids right the why isn't there the business response why doesn't Viacom care as much as it used to about hiv well because it's the end of aids isn't it you know and and i think um you are so right in saying that there isn't that passion that urgency and that anger about um HIV as there really needs to be.
0: And I I think the the principles that we developed back then start in the workplace, comprehensive workplace, uh, training, education, healthcare services. Secondly, expand that community to the community. And then thirdly, use the power of your business voice. I think that stays very, very relevant to today. And despite all the changes that have happened over the last 20 years, that still seems to me the core. Just finally, can we talk a bit about how new technology has changed the way you think about providing prevention education and changing behavior and this is perhaps where i start sounding my my age you know has the move to streaming of content rather than tuning in at 7 p.m. to watch the news or watch whatever has that changed the way you think about reaching young people
1: so when we did the first staying alive documentary back in 1998 we didn't even have a website right so Has it changed in the last 20 years enormously? So we used to create TV content. And then a few years later, when websites were de rigueur, then we would create the content and go, oh, we need to build a website for this but now we look at things as 360 degree campaigns so everything that we do is very much about not just the TV content but it's you know it's often led by digital and social media but for us there's another opportunity as well in that we can put content out on different platforms according to the audience so a, a good example is MTV sugar in South Africa in it's called MTV sugar down south we have a character called Reggie and in series one He's 17 years old, and he is coming out first to himself and then to his family and friends. And obviously, everyone reacts in different ways. In series two, by the way, Reggie gets a boyfriend, which is very exciting. But the important thing is that we're giving this content away to other countries, other broadcasters, where it is still illegal to be gay. And so we know that we can't do it. It's not about us censoring it. It's just... We the broadcasters would not put it up on air. So what we did is created two versions and the Pan-African version, Reggie is, his storyline is not about his sexuality, it's about his relationship with his father Um, and being who he wants to be because Reggie wants to be creative, his father wants him to study harder, right? That's how we did it, but on YouTube, the only version you can watch is the South African version where Reggie is gay. And the great thing about YouTube is we get our viewers from all over the place. So from Tanzania, from Uganda, from Nigeria. And in series one, we got... Quite a lot of homophobic comments. Apparently, uh, the West brought gayness to Africa. And, you know, if we got rid of the West, then there wouldn't be any gays left across the continent. And, And what was interesting was our audience started to moderate the comments rather than us what's been fascinating for me is series two where Reggie gets a boyfriend. And by the way, we see him, we have a, a scene where we edit between Dineo and Q who, uh, uh, him and her, and then Reggie and his boyfriend are and, and they're both couples are having sex together for the first time. Um, and we edit between them. And what you see in both couples is there's no difference in the way that we filmed it, which I really am proud of, but our audience are fine with it because i think we have helped them they know who reggie is already right so they've they may not like it some of them but they are they're cool with it that's that's what they're watching so that is a brilliant thing about the w- different ways we can use digital media
0: as you look forward what concerns you most what do you think we should be paying most attention to and um, where perhaps staying alive needs to be putting its efforts
1: So I I don't know, this is going to take us back to the beginning of your podcast, but there was uh, something that I read last week that the Pope said that people who abort their fetuses are assassins. And I am hugely concerned and devastated about what's what's going on in this country around your increasing anti-abortion laws, um, but also about how that impacts the rest of the world. Unfortunately, you know, America sneezes and everyone else catches the flu, right? This is not something that is going to stay in this country. Um, it is something that I think, unfortunately, will encourage other countries, and particularly in Africa, and particularly with the the Pope giving sort of approval for these anti-abortion laws. I think it's only going to get worse. You know, we're living in the handmaid's tale and that frightens the hell out of me. So for us at MTV Staying Alive, we have moved from being HIV solely focused to being around sexual reproductive health and rights and everything that that entails. Um, And where relevant, it includes mental health. But I think, you know, being able to give our audience all of the information they need, that is what we're there for, to tell stories to save lives.
0: Well, thank you, Georgia. And we really appreciate you telling stories to save lives and look forward to sugar, uh, the next episodes and the next seasons, but also where where you go and the leadership you bring. So Georgia Arnold, thank you for being a shot in the arm.
1: Thank you, Ben Plumley.
0: Okay, well that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Georgia Arnold from MTV Staying Alive Foundation. Thank you to Eric Espera for producing the show from NewsDoc Media. Thanks to the Pet Shop Boys as ever for nothing at all. And if you uh, would like, you can find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and you can find us at Facebook and Twitter at Shotarm Podcast like us and if you do give us five stars and have a great week